five years ago, I would have been like, you want us to raise how much? Yeah. But you know, you know from your business and, and obviously Rhett knows from his that like, yeah, people write hundred million dollar checks all the time. There's a, couple, a lot of money know, out there. Yeah. And so whereas five years ago I would have been like, oh my this business model, like on the face of it, I'm not going to attempt because who the hell could raise that much? Yeah. It's like actually paradoxically, it's exactly the kind of business that some very large check writers might want to write checks for. Welcome to The Four Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today was a great episode. If you know me, especially on Twitter, you know of my main man, Moses Kagan, become one of my best friends. And today I'm sitting down with him and his partner, Rhett Bennett, in a new business they just launched called Reseed Partners, which is basically aiming to be the Y Combinator for real estate companies. We go really in depth on how this business is going to be run, what it's going to look like, the types of folks that they're looking to partner with, the business plans they're trying to execute, the way folks will learn. And then we finish it off with a 20-minute discussion on the current market, what we're all seeing, how we're thinking about going forward. And it was just a really interesting time. Uh, it was great to be with Moses and Rhett today, and I think that'll shine through in this episode. So thanks for continuing to listen. Enjoy the show. If you're in the real estate business, then you know that you have to make offering memorandums, investor reporting, pitch decks. And I came across this awesome company called Better Pitch. They're a design firm specializing in pitch deck creation for real estate acquisition, management, and disposition. So if you're tired of moonlighting as a graphic designer when you should be focused on finding capital and penciling deals, look no further than Better Pitch. From acquisitions to dispositions, Better Pitch decks are designed to help you raise more money quicker by effectively communicating the key points of your deal without breaking the bank. Unlike most agencies who may delegate your work to inexperienced interns and analysts, you'll work directly with one dedicated pitch deck designer to craft your presentation from scratch to perfection. Here's the best part. Better Pitch is offering Fort Podcast subscribers their services risk-free. That's right. They'll design your deck for a small refundable deposit. If you love it, payment is made up upon completion. If you're not satisfied, move along risk-free. Ready to get your pitch deck working for you? Book a call today at betterpitch.com. I just pinch myself when I think about what Fort Capital's done over the last few years. We're based in Fort Worth, Texas. And we have a track record that has already transacted on over $2 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Our team is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Moses, Rhett, welcome to Fort Worth. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we've done uh, 185, 186, 54 in episode 46 with Moses, Rhett, first time. It's great to be here. Yeah. Give us a, just a little bit of background of where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So I've spent kind of the last 20 years in various in investing roles. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, went to school at Brown University, 
ended up back in Birmingham and I was the, uh, the CIO of an outsourced, you know, a multifamily office. I went from there to, I ran a, or as the president of a long short equity hedge fund based in Palo Alto. Okay. From there, I moved to Boulder. I took another investing role or I was the co-managing partner of an outsourced CIO. And as part of that, we had a real estate mandate that I was responsible for. Cool. Before we get into kind of the big topic of the show, there's one question I wanted to ask you. Uh-oh. So he's been on four times. If you don't know Moses, I suggest you listen to those episodes and you can get the real background. We're not going to go through it today. But I did want to start with like, how have you evolved over the last four or five years? What was like pre-Twitter Moses like? Because as I've watched, we've been really close for a long time. And I just, I think we're all kind of evolving but like, what are you, how have you evolved over the last five years? That's a really interesting question. I'll say that my core beliefs about business are the same Yeah. in terms of how I want to shape my business and my life. They're, 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 they're very similar. What has changed is one, an appreciation for the power of a huge network. Yep. You know, I was never, I mean, I have a decent network from college and high school and stuff, but like I never, it was never like this. Yeah. And just the level of opportunities. I mean, we're going to talk about it, but this is obviously how I met Rhett and getting to know people who've written big checks into our deals and everything. And then also getting to meet people like you and others who are doing this. And this is an area where I, where things have changed a lot for me is really getting to meet people who think on a very large scale, on a much larger scale than, than is my instinct. Yeah. And I, I really honestly, I give you a lot of credit for this. And so, and again, not to keep bringing this background to this conversation today, but one of the things that drew me to this opportunity that we're going to be talking about today is that pretty quickly after Red explained to me how he was thinking about it, it was like, oh, this can be really large. Yep. And so that's something that that opportunity would never have come to me five years ago. And I wouldn't have, even if it had, I, I don't know that I would have been able to process it. Yeah, I, I have to ask you that because I just think we've kind of grown up in this generation and, and same thing. A lot of people will be like, you know, why do you spend so much time on Twitter? For every minute I spend on Twitter, it has this exponential impact on my career going forward. And, I, and you could make an argument like, is it too early, too late? I think it's just the beginning again of, of these type of things. And so... Had to ask that. Obviously, brought together today's conversation. You guys just launched a new business. Let's just start there. What is the business and kind of a little background of how did this come to be? Yeah. So the business is Reseed Partners. We are in the business really to do two different things. One is our goal is to build a large asset management business where we provide access to investors to the sub institutional real estate market at scale. Okay. The second part of the business is we want to help young, ambitious real estate operating partners build big businesses. And it's very important to know that it will be their businesses. Yep. And so we're there to support them, help them get off the ground, and then eventually scale that business. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's obviously a little bit of maybe of a facile comparison, but, you know, it's it's what we're trying to build is, is Y Combinator for real estate GPs. Okay. Um, and as we start to talk about it, you'll see where the scale comes in. But but what we're intending to do is to take initially cohorts of, you know, five to seven, probably that ends up being 10 or 15 later on people in initially multifamily, but eventually in other asset classes in geographies that we like, okay. teach them to do the business the way that we would like it done, capitalize them to do it, 
and then support them as they go chase deals, buy them, and scale their businesses into, as as Rhett said, into into large freestanding operating companies. And and y'all obviously been in the business. You kind of come from different backgrounds. Like, why was this the thing that you were going to chase? Has this been something that y'all been thinking about a long time? You know, why why this? Let's maybe yeah maybe Rhett can talk about it from the allocator perspective, and okay. and maybe I'll talk about it from the operator perspective. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So my previous role, I was tasked with going and building a real estate portfolio, really from a a blank sheet of paper. And so I went down kind of the traditional paths where I said, okay, we have long duration capital. How do we how do we maximize returns over a very long period of time? And for us, when I when I did that exercise, it became very clear that for long duration capital, the private typical private equity vehicle was not that attractive because as you know, you lose a lot of the tax benefits associated with real estate when you go through the private equity structures. And so from there, it was obvious that in the shop that I was in, we really couldn't manage the assets directly. So we had to go to local operating partners. And we started buying deals, doing transactions, you know, things were going well, but it became very difficult to scale. So we yeah. found a couple operating partners. We then started, you know, putting capital out. But when you when you think about putting significant amounts of capital out, it kind of naturally pushes you upstream in terms of transaction size. And we have a pretty strong belief that as you get larger in transaction size, the return opportunity actually starts to come down. Yep. Yeah. And just to unpack what Red said a little bit, obviously it's more efficient to write large checks. But as you know, when you're doing large deals, you're dealing with sophisticated owners, sophisticated property managers, and probably most importantly, sophisticated brokers who know how to run real sale processes. And it's going to wash out a lot of the excess returns that you're obviously looking for. So so then the question becomes like, okay, how do you attack that sub-institutional market? But with a large enough volume of of capital being deployed to move the dial for real large allocators. Yeah, that's right. And so in my previous seat, we invested across different asset types. And so we thought there were some models that were analogous to this in VC, Moses has used Y Combinator, in private equity. But I didn't see a solution that was built to take young operating partners and really kind of you know, change, as Moses would say, change their trajectory. Right. And so we really believe that we can help people grow faster, build bigger businesses, and and avoid a lot of the puddles that you know Moses may have stepped in or I stepped in along the way. The answer to this might be both, but is the goal to to obviously we know we want to make money, but is the goal to do that by helping a bunch of just like Y Combinator, a bunch of startups become successful or is the goal to also i could either write a hundred million dollar check into one deal and make 15 percent. we're trying to write a hundred million dollar check into 20 deals and make 25 percent. like where's the money what's the the motivation yeah the answer is both okay so i mean certainly as i as i mentioned we we really believe that the sub-institutional real estate space is much more attractive yep. from a return perspective but we also, you know, we really believe that we can take uh, a small number of very talented individuals and help them build big businesses. I think it's also important to say it's not just any type of businesses that we're out trying to help them build. Right. So the 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 problem for a an allocator who pays taxes, right, is 
that the traditional real estate private equity model, which is heavily IRR driven, is going to incent certain kinds of behaviors, which are not welcome from the perspective of tax-paying allocators. For example, levering up, you know, ripping and running, so buying, lipsticking, selling quickly. And, and therefore, uh, generating lots of transaction fees and capital gains taxes and depreciation recapture and all that stuff. And all, and interestingly, like that behavior makes a ton of sense if you are a non tax paying investor. Yeah. If you are a foundation or an endowment and you do not pay taxes, then you should maximize IRR. And so I think, and that makes sense. And that, and that, and I think a lot of the more institutional real estate private equity firms have understandably designed their businesses with that customer in mind. But as Rhett has just been describing, there are other large investors who pay taxes. And if you talk to like rich families that own commercial real estate, like they don't sell stuff. <laughs> You're like, what's the IRR? And they're like, what are you talking about? What's like, an IRR? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, our biggest investor has owned stuff since the forties. Like what's the IRR on that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's just a completely different way of thinking about real estate. And so, um, so the problem is if you are one of these very large tax-paying investors and you would like to write large checks, the problem is how do you do that? Yeah. And it's not so it's not just about getting the capital out the door, it's about getting it out the door into properties that are selected for long-term holds and we can talk about what that means, but it's like it's a it's a that's a you know both like a a, a question of the market Yep. And the the literally like the property itself, the the physical building that 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 you're buying. So it's 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 selection, selecting market and, and property. It's also the the economic arrangements as between the investor and the operator, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have an operator that is primarily focused on crystallizing a promote ASAP. It, that is going to incent behavior that is at odds with the goal of these tax-paying allocators. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is sort of to socialize, to raise, to create, and then to socialize these young operators to serve us up, to us and therefore the allocators who are backing us, to serve up to us the kinds of transactions that we actually want them to serve up to us. Yep. So when I first met you, you used to, uh, you described yourself, you'd always say like, I'm really weird. We like to buy things, hold them like long-term families would. Has that always kind of been, have you always thought through that lens? Because I remember when I first met Moses was like, I didn't come from that world. It was like, no, we're going to buy it. it. was the Blackstone model, buy it, fix it, sell it. The irony is, and we won't, this isn't about me today, where we're headed as a company is way closer to where Moses stands. You realize over time, like, Yes, a general like leave tax out of it. It's just a lot of work to buy and sell. Yeah. And over the long term, you actually aren't making that much more. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I will say is the night the promotes can be really tempting. <laughs> uh, had a few yeah. of those good ones. But what were you guys bonded on the idea that obviously there's a lot of talented people out there that need an opportunity, but also bonded on this idea that we need to start training the next generation of people to kind of think more long term? Yeah, absolutely. So I reached out to Moses via Twitter. That's how we that's how we originally met. And that, I mean, it's the beauty of the platform, right? I, I felt like I knew Moses before I actually met with him. And a lot of that was, you know, even going back to his blog. And so it was, you know, when I was reading the material, it was obvious that was like, this is the way that I think about the business. This is in every role that I've been in, it's always been about long-term investing. And 
you know, this might be an interesting talk, topic to talk about later, but I actually think that if you can think long-term and you can think about the situations that allow you to deploy long, long-term capital at an advantage, it becomes a, you know, you start to really shrink the pool that you're competing against. Yep. And that's what we're trying to teach the operating partners that will come through Reseed. So we were, I think it's very important that when you enter into a relationship and Moses and I are partners in this deal, that you have a strong philosophical grounding and a bond. And we absolutely do around both kind of the long-term orientation of this business, but also just the business design and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I, I will also, I'll add that Rhett tried to give me a bunch of money <laughs> and I was like, thanks, but I don't have anything to put it in. And I think, and, and, and that sort of speaks to, to why I'm so excited about this opportunity. By definition, what we have built at Adaptive is a niche business. Yep. And the pace of capital deployment is, because we are ruthlessly quantitative about what we look at, it's pretty clear when we should buy stuff and when we shouldn't buy stuff, for better or worse. Like, I have not bought a rehab deal in probably like a year and a half or something. Yeah. And we really slowed down maybe two and a half years ago. And so that's just the nature of the beast. Like, it's going to be in our market for various reasons. It's not been a good time to put capital out. So the pace of growth for us is going to be constrained and therefore our ability to take capital and be for our allocators a, a way to deploy capital is constrained. And so one of the beautiful things about this model that Red approached me with was this idea that by diversifying, instead of having one adaptive, yeah. you know, have 10, 20, 30 in niches that we've picked out both, you know, geographically and in terms of asset classes that can absorb capital at any time. And so, you know, possibly it's not, things are not good in multifamily two years from now. Like maybe we're going to do some storage deals, yeah. right? Or maybe different geographic, different different markets perform differently and we more, one or the other is more attractive. Like it, it kind of, it, it dramatically expands the scope across which these ideas that we have and these learnings that we've developed in my, in, in adaptive can be applied. Yep. I will say there is nobody I've met that's more disciplined than Moses. Like in these markets, the last three years, a lot of people have like, I'm not saying abandoned, and it might not have been a bad decision to abandon previous underwriting standards. No, people like, did great. They did great. And the verdict will be out of how great they'll do. But if one, and there's one thing I think about, if I think of Moses, it's, it's very disciplined. And so bringing that approach into this, obviously you... Again, it's the world we live in. You got to get to know Moses by just reading his stuff. It's just undeniable. You know what you're going to get from Moses. I still can't wait for the day he comes on. He's like, sold my whole portfolio, 30 IRR, 30 IRR. Uh, probably not going to happen. Um, how do y'all define sub-institutional? Yeah, I think you can define it in a couple of different ways, quantitative and qualitative. I think the easy math would be to say it's somewhere between five and $20 million transactions. Okay. But obviously that's drawing black and white lines that don't really exist. Right. I think for us, it's really about how competitive is the market, Okay. how fragmented is the market, and how likely is it that we come across either a busted deal process or an asset that's like grossly mismanaged. Yep. And so if you think about it, the, you know, the one extreme, it's probably pretty rare that you find an apartment that has you know, it's a $50 million transaction size it's not been managed fairly well. I mean, there's always things that you can do better, but it's pretty common that you're going to find an apartment that may sell for 
five or $10 million that maybe a family's owned it for 20 years and they haven't raised rents in a very long time. And by the way, that is a giant, there's a very long tail of those type of assets that yeah. exist. Anything? No, I think that's, I, I just, I do want to, to, to say, to follow with what Red said is it's not an arbitrary 20 million limit. In other right. words, like, and particularly as we get more comfortable with our operators, if it turns out that one or more of them have a strategy and a pipeline that starts to produce larger deals, like, you know, like Zyma Gazunt in Yiddish is like, go in good health, <laughs> good, go in good health, right? Like, like, great, we'll do those. You know what I mean? But where we think that, where we think the opportunity is, particularly for younger operators who are coming in with some significant disadvantages. And we can talk about what it means to be a, a, a new operator in a, you know, in a market. It's, it is not a particularly advantaged position to be in. But one of the places we think that they can be competitive is in this sub-institutional space. All right. So let's kind of, kind of dive into it. So let's start with, you mentioned a cohort of five to seven people. Let's just start there. We're, we haven't, you haven't launched cohort one. What will that look like? How will you all understand who's going to make that cohort? And then let's talk about what will happen during that cohort. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we should start with the response that we got on Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> I knew it was going to be big. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be that big. Yeah. So I think the best way to describe what happened is I was sitting at my desk. I think it was 630 in the morning. You knew it was um, coming. Yeah, we have two colleagues that were wor working on the launch, I got a call. Laura Cranick, who's a partner of ours, said, I think we're getting attacked by bots. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, the website's not getting attacked by bots. Moses tweeted, and that's all real interest coming into to the website. Oh, yeah. So we start with, in the first kind of week, most in the first 24 hours, we've had 1,500 people sign oh, up. Oh, my gosh. We, Congrats. Um, yeah, thank you. So we, obviously that was in excess of what we originally planned for. What were you planning for? I think the number we use internally, we said, if we get three or 400 emails, we'll be really excited about that. So <laughs> that happened in about 60 minutes. The Moses effect is real. Exactly. Well, I, let me just, I just want to step in and say like, for, because I think a lot of those people will be listening to this. I just want to say thank you to the whole community. I mean, I, I've, I have tried to add more value to real estate Twitter than I have extracted, Yeah, which is like, you know, obviously that's just good business and everything that ever, all of us do. And, you know, so I, I feel like I've, I've contributed a lot, but this was like, it really was quite meaningful to me personally to get that kind of response. It was, so awesome. it, was it felt really good. Yep. Yeah. It's definitely a day I won't forget. That's awesome. Um, all right. So 1500 come in week one. Yeah. We have released the application. So we sent them an application that, that talks about their experience and, you know, what are their goals and what are they focused on? What markets are they interested in? What strategy would they try to execute? And so we'll take that. So those applications will then start to interview people via Zoom. We've got a whole grading and scoring process. And then we also have to think about markets. And so maybe Moses, that's something you want to talk about as well. Because there's this tension between picking the operator and, and picking the market. And ultimately, it'll boil down to us spending time in the market with a small number of operators and then eventually capitalizing them with capital to fund their business. Yeah. And I want to say, I mean, I don't know that there's like a playbook here. So 
you know, we have some hypotheses about what a successful operator might look like and, you know, where they might come from and what their background might be. But this is very much a learning process for us. So we're, we, we're approaching it in kind of a rational way. We'll talk about sort of maybe we're sort of expecting the operators to come from maybe it's four buckets, I think. And this has been borne out actually by the applications, which has been gratifying. Analyst associate types at existing real estate private equity shops. And we have been blown away by, I was expecting people who have been in the business for two years and we have applications for people who've been in the business 10 years. Yeah. Great, great source of talent there. Brokers who have got to know, in this case, probably multifamily in a geography really well, but or for whatever reason would prefer to be on the principal side. Yeah. One that I actually had not considered carefully enough, but which I think we're seeing in the applications is people with more of like a construction slash architecture type background, which is going to kind of be going to kind of be interesting to see. And then interestingly, and this is another one that I was not expecting a ton of, but which we are seeing is existing operators. Okay. So people who have done some deals, you know this probably as well as anyone, it's very hard to go from having done zero deals to doing your first deal, but it's also a whole other step to go from having done deal two, three, whatever, to being like, okay, this is a full-time operation with the flywheel spinning and enough access to capital. I mean, we can talk about, I call that my crawling over broken glass period. That's my favorite quote on y'all's website. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's like, that, that is what it was. And we did, I mean, we can talk about this too. Like we did so much dumb stuff. (laughs) <laughs> that was well because we were, you didn't know we were we didn't know and we were broke <laughs> so <laughs> you know so like you you're trying to like you're trying to feed your family and cr- come up with money for co-invests and deals right and 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 you don't have anything coming in and like so what do you do so you're like oh, okay i'll broker a deal over here okay, i'll do some brokerage <laughs> like as you and others have, have pointed out pretty stupid to broker deals if you're going to try to be a principal in that market because yeah. all the brokers are like, hey, I'm not going to show this guy my best deal. <laughs> I'm still dealing with people being like, wait a second, aren't you guys brokers? And we haven't brokered a deal for third party in a long time. Uh, so, so, so that, you know, we, we did, I think, 30 fee development deals where we didn't get any equity. We just got like cash fees. And it was, th- that I knew was stupid, but we couldn't, I didn't have the ability to raise the money. So it was like, I needed to eat and we needed to reinvest in the business. So we did it. Anyway, my point is that like getting through that period is really hard. Yep. And so it is perhaps unsurprising that a bunch of people who are kind of in that are like, hey, you have a way to help me like accelerate through this and get to the point where my business is actually a flywheel. Like, yes, I am interested in that. Yeah, and it, go ahead. Sorry, the one thing I would add to that is that we kind of had this hypothesis that those four types would come through in the application, but we've actually been surprised in a couple of cases. So we've had a, a fairly large percentage of the folks that are coming from different interest industries, but they've done a deal, right? So they're not sitting in a real estate shop or sitting in one of the roles. And, you know, maybe it's the economic environment in tech, but we've had a lot of people that have, you know, primarily their day job is, is they're a software engineer, but they've actually done some deals and, you know, they bought a fourplex or they bought a couple of apartments and they're interested in making that career switch. And so that, I would say that's a surprise relative to our initial hypothesis of the type of people that would apply. And those people are, I mean, to be really frank, like we're excited about a lot of those applications because you have these people who, 
Well, first of all, you know, good so- software engineers are going to tend to be pretty high IQ people in general. Yeah. And then they they also tend to think very systematically. Like yeah. they think like engineers. And that turns out to actually be a quite a good background for the kind of business that we're in in terms, you know, it's 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 as we've both of us have said many times, it's not rocket science, right? Like it's not, it's not, but but it does reward like thinking in systems and optimizing systems and then and 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 then executing ruthlessly against a relatively limited playbook. And it turns out that that kind of person actually is 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 pretty interesting to us. I think about Rohan when we're having yeah. this. Oh, hundred percent from tech and and the way he's thought through the business is so systematic. I was thinking about him as I was giving that answer. Yeah. <laughs> It is it, when you have a, a a pool of candidates and you kind of break them into those four, I'm assuming that just, hey, I'm a hustler, never done any of this, but I'm just really interested. That's probably not going to, at least in the first cohorts, make its way to the top. You want to see something that's demonstrated. You've been in this business. You've thought about it for a while, not just, I'm, you know, I'm a hustler and I can prove it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we'd love the opportunity to put everybody in business. Of but course. That's just not the reality. And so we think about it in terms of, you know, what are tells that people really think this is their life mission? And I think that anybody that's been able to, you know, work their day job and then do a transaction outside of it, it's a pretty interesting tell yeah. that they're really devoted to building a business. Okay. I, and I, I mean, I, I guess I should say, you know, there there are a, there's a, a kind of a range of skills that are required to be successful in this business. You think about like what's what do you need to do to do acquisitions well? And what do you need to do to raise capital? And how do you execute on a deal after you buy? There's like a set of things. And the truth is that probably you could teach any one or any one of those things, or and you can teach a bunch of them, but you would like people to be coming in knowing at least something. Right. They, be, you know, and it, it I don't want to rule out the possibility that we would ever take someone who doesn't have experience. I mean, I think that 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 is a possibility at some point down the road, but particularly for these first couple cohorts, I mean, it's so important to us that, I mean, candidly, like we can't have these people flaming out. Right. So we, if it, if it requires like Rhett and I like going down to the market and like holding their hand and like walking them through to a reasonable outcome, like that's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so we, we'd like to kind of stack the deck in our favor. And go ahead. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, this is not about one cohort or two yeah. cohorts for us. I mean, we're trying to build a, a large business and we'd like to wake up, you know, five, 10 years down the road and we have 50, 60, 70 people in this vertical across markets. And then you could think about industrial, self-storage, some of the others. And to be clear, anybody that's going to get in the cohort has to demonstrate that this is going to be their full-time job. It's not a part-time deal for anybody. No, and we're going to pay them. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're part of, part of what made me so excited about the opportunity was this ability to, 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 to fix. There's like this, it's not so bad in some ways because it's it, there's a barrier to entry in the business, which yeah. is like, okay, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to do with knowledge and contacts and mentoring and all that stuff. We're going to, certainly we're going to address those. But there's also just physically like a money problem that a lot of people have get have getting into the business. Yeah. And I mean, some of us got countrywide no-doc loans. <laughs> some of us happen to have a really close friend from high school who made a lot of money oh, and was yeah. willing to tolerate a lot of dumb mistakes. <laughs> But not uh, everybody, not everyone has that. And so the ability to say to someone who's like, you know, maybe has been sitting in an acquisitions role at a successful private equity shop 
but who, I don't know, maybe has a young family or doesn't have a rich family or whatever to say, look, like you're going to bet on, you're going to bet your career on this. Like you're going to go do this full time, but we're not going to make you starve while you do it. Yeah. You know, can you guys speak at all when you said there's a grading scoring process? Obviously there's four categories of people. What if somebody's listening to this, they're thinking about applying or maybe they're thinking about how am I going to fill out my resume? Like what scores higher than other things? Or is that a black box right now? It's definitely not a black box. Okay. So I think I'm sure that you can guess it. I mean, as you said, a lot of this is not rocket science, but what we're trying to do is say, okay, what are indications that this is really somebody that wants to do this for the long term. We start everything with that part of the conversation. Yeah. And as we said, there's you know, doing a transaction is a big part of that. We also think a lot about, you know, how much have they thought about what they want to do? Yeah. Right? So when they're describing the mar- the market opportunity, is it I like apartments or is it I like class B value add in this market at this point? I would pay this price. X, Y, Z, right? So the the clarity of thought around why they chose the market, why they chose multifamily, where in the multifamily spectrum they said, I think all of the that for us just shows a passion and a certain amount of intensity that they brought to this to the process. Yeah, and I would also add, I mean, and we, we should probably talk about the sort of personal characteristics too. Although how you start grading personality is a whole other conversation, mm-hmm. but I think for me, and I don't want to speak for Red here, but for me ambition is really quite near the top of the list. In other words, we want people who want to build really big operating. Like if we want someone who's sitting there and going, I want to be Chris Power someday. Yeah. Like not someone who's like, oh, I'm trying to build a, you know, a lifestyle business where I own, you know, five or six buildings and I'm done. Like that's cool. Like that's a great, that's a great life. And I, you know, I my hat's off to people who do that. And that's a, you know, in some ways their lives are probably a lot <laughs> less complicated than ours are. <laughs> For our business to work, we need to grow very large operating companies that are going to be large consumers of capital. Yeah. So we need people coming in the door and saying, look, I need some help to do this and I and I appreciate your help, but I am like the goal that I'm I have in mind is a big company. All right. So we've gone through the application process and now I've been selected. What is going to happen next? Yeah, so we're calling that the reseed partner track. Okay. So there will be a launch phase, which is largely going to be in person. Okay. But prior to that, there'll be some work to do around, you know, just getting basic information, some reading, starting to spend time with the whole reseed team, which we should talk about at some point because it's definitely goes beyond just Moses and I. Yep. We then, so you, you'll have some work before the launch week. You'll show up at launch week. Both Moses and I are a big believer, and it's not about just sitting up there and listening to lectures and, and speeches. It's doing, right? It's getting your business going. And so when you come out of launch week, you'll have your entity set up. You'll actually have your broker list that you're going to start to call on. You'll have been through some case studies with, with Moses. So you'll actually you know, start to build that rhythm of what do you need to do on, on an everyday basis? Post-launch week, which is, you know, we're talking, we call it the build phase. Mm-hmm. That's really kind of the next 12 months. A lot of that is weekly calls with a team, reviewing deals, starting to underwrite transactions together, hopefully doing a few transactions along the way. And that's the period during which they're getting paid a salary. So okay. we're, we are, 
and and frankly, you know, the expectation is that they will execute what we want them to execute during that year. Yep. And to the extent that they don't, like probably out of the out of the, out of the cohort at that point. It, and again, we haven't done a cohort. I'm saying we, but yeah. I tend to do that on podcasts. I'm a partner for the you're day. In. Boom. I think he just committed to speaking. <laughs> I at just week. I just committed to speaking at launch week. And it is a week. It's a one week deal. Is it's launch it's not launch weeks. Yeah. We will bring people back together in person. Yeah. But the first we're the first week is in person. That's what we refer to as we, launch. And I I want to just say like part of the part of the problem we're trying to solve with that is like Okay, let's say I put you in business. Okay. Uh uh okay, you quit your job, you got a salary, you sit down at your desk. Like, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, right? Like suddenly you don't have a boss coming to you and being like, Can you please do this TPS report? Like, like what do you do? And yeah. the answer is we there are a number of things that you need to be doing. Yeah. Talking to brokers to build deal flow. You need to be visiting apartments in your market so that you can start to underwrite rents with some certainty meeting property management companies so that you know that who you're going to bring on board once you start to buy deals, talking to contractors about different renovation specs and what those things are likely to cost and trying to get comfortable so that you know who you're going to hire once you buy one of these things. It's it's trying to kind of like take what, it, what could be like a nebulous blank page problem and be like, no, these are the steps that you need to go through to do this successfully. Yep. And it sort of implant that early on into them so that then when we release them back into their market, they 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 are not just sitting there, you know, staring at the wall. Yeah, I think this is where the Y Combinator analogy starts to fall apart a little bit. Yeah. So we could spend three months in Boulder where where I live and have a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, as we all know, real estate's a local business. And so you can't design it in the same way you would right. a tech accelerator. You have to be in the market. And do you foresee, like, are these all individuals? Are there, are there going to be co-founder teams? Do you all look to pair people up maybe? Or do you want to see co-founders? Or you're totally cool with it just being a really rock star guy or gal and they're just going to be on their own day one? Yeah, I think... Um, we're not going to play matchmaker, so we'll leave that to the apps. Okay. <laughs> um, we are. We absolutely are open to partnerships. I think you can make a strong argument that yeah, you know, there's a lot of case studies of, of partners. Moses has a partner in his business as well. That's very advantageous, and so we're. I don't know the exact. Split He's the better half. I'll, no, <laughs> I've gotten to meet him. It's, it's certainly the cooler <laughs> half. <laughs> And so we're, we're open to both. And we've had a lot of applications of both solo entrepreneurs as well as, as partnerships. I'd like to add to that. And this is actually something we haven't discussed, Red. So Red might just chime in here and tell me I'm you heard it completely here first, wrong. Folks. <laughs> I, I've talked about this on Twitter some. For me, with respect to partnership, I think the idea of having partnerships is great. I would like to see someone in the decision-making role. Yeah. Because I mean, we, you know, we, I think we've probably talked about this before. Yep. You have a partner, but you- But I'm the decision-maker. Yep. And, I, and I, it's- I, in my my previous business before I started Adaptive, I was partnered with my brother, who I I love dearly. But we were sort of co managers of the entity, and like we spent so much time fighting with each other about issues that, in retrospect, were so meaningless. Yeah, and just so much energy was expended because no one could finally say this is the decision. Yeah. So I'm, you know, we again, I haven't talked about this with Red, so we'll see if he chimes in to tell me I'm crazy. But I would personally like to see. A decision maker. Yeah. For the record, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get this one out real quick. People applying, are you guys going to be backing any de like ground up developers out of the gate or is it is it more of a renovation strategy? 
it's more of a renovation strategy and or kind of some of Moses's recent deals where there might not be heavy value add, but we like the asset and like the market. So s- somewhere between like a value, some, somewhere between heavy value add all the way up to core, including some lighter value adds and maybe core plus, let's say. But, um, and it, it is conceivable that at some point in the future we'll do ground up development, but like we got to like limit the complexity here in some, in some dimensions. If you had said ground up development, I was going to spend the rest of this podcast <laughs> convincing you don't do that to start. Um, okay. So the first week goes well. You go, I'm, I'll, I'll put myself in the shoes. We, we like each other. And now the next year is going to begin. This is where I'm going to start digging. What does a partnership with y'all look like? What am I getting? What is that next year going to look like? And what are you expecting of me to do? One deal, two deals a certain dollar volume of deals, all the above. Well, procedurally, it will be weekly calls, probably some market visits, ideally wrapped around live deals. Okay. But but regardless of whether there are live deals going on or not, we want to see evidence that you are progressing your in, in the all the metrics that we can track. So how many broker calls have you made? Like, what is the volume of inbound opportunities that you've sort of, that you've, that you've built up? Have you actually gone and met with the relevant property managers the rec- and the relevant brokers? Have you done an exercise where you evaluate OPEX? That's a, that's a huge one. We didn't even talk about that. Like, obviously, when you're modeling a deal, your ability to, to, to accurately forecast what it's going to take to operate the building is, is incredibly important. And one of the disadvantages you have as a beginning operator is like, how, how do you start? To, how do you estimate that? And I'll tell you what the wrong answer is: is taking a bunch of broker pro formas. <laughs> <laughs> they tend to leave expenses out, yeah, right? So, so like, what does that look? Well, it turns out that the answer to that is probably you go meet a bunch of property managers and try and get some anonymized but real P and Ls from real deals and start to kind of triangulate and say, okay, what is this probably going to look like? So it's that. So we want to see evidence that even if they're not doing a transaction immediately, that they are growing in terms of their presence in the market and therefore the inbound deal flow that they're getting, that they are doing outbound to try to get deals. You know, that's that's depending on the market. Like in Los Angeles, that doesn't work as well, but in less well-brokered markets, act, actively going out and approaching owners is important. Yeah. And then we want to see that they are internally kind of developing the knowledge that is necessary to accurately underwrite and then eventually to execute on these deals. Yeah, I think just to add on to that, obviously, the what happens over the course of the next 12, 24 months with the debt markets and some of the stress that we're starting to see, yeah. that's going to have a you know very high correlation to the number of transactions that they should do, right? So if we stay in a market that is where pricing is not nearly as attractive as we would like it to be, then we really have to focus on process. And as Moses said, we're just, you know, we're confident that over a long enough time period, if you get up every day, you meet with brokers, you look at transactions, you underwrite transactions, you will find apartments or assets to buy. So we're, Right, but you actually have to sit your ass in the seat and do the work, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you know that's and that's I'll never forget. Actually, my my partner and I have you know we've gone through ups and downs, just like all partnerships have. And I think maybe the most meaningful 
com- one of the most meaningful compliments I've ever gotten in a professional context was John basically being like, the thing I like about you is you cut in here every single day and sit down and look at deals year after year after year after year. And like, it turns out that if you keep doing that, you will find stuff to do. It's just that most people don't have the, 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 the diligence to sort of sit there and actually do it. And as it relates to like market, is there market? You only want to be in tier one cities. Would you be in, you know, we're here in DFW. Would you be doing stuff, you know, in Alito or around DFW, or would you want it to be like in the core city? Yeah, I think the answer is not just tier one. We're okay. open to a lot of different markets, but as Moses indicated, we want to help people build reasonably sized businesses. Yeah, and so you got to have a market that has some scale. Yeah, and then you have to have a reason for wanting to be in that market. Right, right. And if you talk to Moses about Los Angeles, he's going to tell you that street by street, block by block, where does he want to be? And like that's what we're looking for for somebody that really understands the market. And is willing to just continue to grow and got that understanding of the market. And you guys said, you know, if if deals are attractive pricing, who gets to determine what's attractive or not? Is that y'all? Is that the operator? Great question. Because what's attractive to me might not be attractive. Who gets to kind of make that decision? Yeah. So we expect to provide the co-GP capital in the most transactions that our operators find and, and do. We also, you know, expect to raise LP capital to help them fund the transactions on a one-off basis. But at the end of the day, it's their business. And so they get to decide what transactions they're going to pursue, but we get to decide which transactions we will fund. Okay. So for that first year, we want them working on, we, we, we basically have a set of investment guidelines. Like here's what we want you to be looking for. Right. While we're paying them for that year, we want them looking for that kind of deal. Yeah. If after that point, like they decide, hey, you know what? Actually, there's better opportunities in retail. Hey, like we'll talk about it. We'll we, we'll keep a small stake in their operating business. Okay. But like, hey, if they want to go buy retail, like you know, they should do it. What what we're hoping for though is that they will they will go cook us up the stuff that we want to eat. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is there a certain type of deal though that fits, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily the return? Is it? Because obviously they're going to be holding it for the long term, so it doesn't have to be what your IRR in three years. But what would be like an absolute no, and what would be an absolute yes? Yeah. So I mean, I I think this is going to sound familiar because it's because you know, <laughs> it is because <laughs> you know we're looking ideally for some kind of supply constraints. We or I, I can imagine scenarios where we would be open to markets that have limited supply constraints, but where we are getting in at a sufficiently attractive basis. Okay. But we're, we we prefer supply constraints. We want, from a physical perspective, we want a building that is in really good shape. So, okay. you know, you're right. One ideal scenario is, you know, and this will obviously depend on what happens with the debt market. But like, if you have a, if, if in high interest rates persist and you have a bunch of people who built really nice buildings who need to sell them because they can't refinance them and we can buy them for replacement cost or something lower than replacement cost and get a decent going in yield, not an amazing one, but like a decent one, but on a brand new building that's built well in an area we like, like, yeah, we'll take that. If it's going to be a rehab deal, it's going to be a rehab deal where the systems are being addressed because what we don't want to do is end up with a portfolio of like, 
60s and 70s apartment buildings that have been lipsticked but the plumbing's old and we're you know because i just i i know from having operated a, a wide range of buildings that whatever you're estimating on the opex for a un, unrepiped 1960s building is is too low <laughs> yeah. it's going to be higher so that so we're we're looking so we we want supply constraints we want to we want the building to be right physical building to be right and then we, we want to see some evidence i think of like a, a a diverse and dynamic economy okay like obviously like to use an extreme example we're probably not going to want to buy in like a heavily cyclical like oil market yeah right like sorry just, midland Texas. sorry yeah i mean look there's there's i'm sure actually i'm sure there's people who have done very very well buying there but we were these are long this is long duration capital and we want long duration operators and so they need to be in a market where you know, a, a commodity price moving or a, a company deciding to relocate an HQ or something like that doesn't nuke the market. If I was to say, what is a successful year? What's the, at the end of the first year? And, and if I was to say, have they been successful or not? How would you determine that? I think it's really around this playbook. I mean, that Moses outlined is, is as I said, I mean, we, we can't predict where the market goes. Right. And we're just a believer. If you get up every day and, and, you know, Moses has lived it and, you know, I've been in, investing for a long time and, and we're confident that over time you will build a big business if you get up every day and do those actions. And so it's a lot about, can you ingrain those behaviors and, and get that done? I mean, if I, if you want to go to you know more of a scoreboard metric, I think that you know getting a transaction or two done, we certainly would expect that most of the operators will be in a place where they are they've bought an asset or bought a couple assets. Yeah, yeah, and I just and I think maybe the the reason that we're hesitating a little bit to answer the question is we all know that from a, from the allocator's perspective, like the last thing you want to do is capitalize a deal that the GP is doing just because someone's got a gun to his head yeah. or her head, you know, either because they need the money from the acquisition fee or or they just or get bored and feel like they got to do something like that. So we do not want that. So the pace of deployment from our perspective is going to be dictated to a large extent by the market. Yeah. What we're doing by 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 organizing these cohorts is over time to sort of diversify out such that hopefully we even if one or more of the markets does not prove fruitful in the in a given time period that other ones are so that we have a constant stream of deployment opportunities. And frankly that like that's something that I think with our investors has been I think, frankly, frustrating for them. A lot of people who we work with or who would like to work with us are like, hey, you got any deals? And it's like, nope. how many times can you say no? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people understandably get a little bored waiting around for me to find something. And it's not my fault because I don't want to show them something dumb. And it's not right. their fault because they have money that they want to deploy. So we're trying to solve that problem by by diversifying the operator base. How would you describe, I, let's just say, you know, I I am I'm calling all the property managers. I'm calling all the brokers, and I buy a deal. Does everybody have to kind of fit the same job description? They can't come to you and say, you know, I'm going to manage this on my own. I, I bought it, and I'm going to manage it, or I'm I, I'm a handyman by nature, so I'll do all the repairs. Are you guys kind of saying you have to outsource all this stuff? We want you in this kind of general circle these are your activities you're doing every day you're not getting lost in the weeds so that you don't chew glass for four or five years where you think you're 
doing all this, but you're getting doing ancillary things just because you think you're good at them. I'd be yeah. interested to hear this. This might be another area where we might we, we haven't talked about, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So look, I think creativity is a very important part of business. Yeah. And so we're not here to say you have to do A, B, C, and D the same way every single time. In fact, I think that it's going to be incredibly important that you know our ecosystem can learn from each other as they iterate and change. But if somebody, you know, before we bought an asset, we would look at that business plan. And if, you know, this guy or girl said, you know, no, I, I'm going to self-manage this and I'll fix the boiler and I'll do the construction <laughs> project. Like the probability that we think that that's a good transaction is pretty low. Yeah. yeah. And so we probably wouldn't capitalize. Yeah. Those are, I mean, part of the lesson that I think that I learned from all, one of the lessons I learned from the path that we took was like, don't do low value stuff. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and I don't mean to look. Someone has to fix the boiler, but yeah. if you can pay someone twenty dollars an hour or forty dollars an hour, whatever it is these days, to fix the boiler, like probably as an as an operator, you should not be doing that. You should pay someone to do it. I could imagine operators self managing, probably not literally fixing boilers, but there are certain asset classes or certain geographies. Let me let me not be so general about it. In Los Angeles, because of the regulatory situation we're in, relatively innocuous or seemingly innocuous mistakes by a property manager can have very large impact on the value of the building. Like, I actually almost made this mistake this week. Um, <laughs> you you price a unit too low in a rent control environment and, and someone goes in there and rents it because your records were wrong and the unit's really a, a two bedroom, but you thought it was a one bedroom. And so you put it out at the one bedroom price and the first person who comes and sees it is like, Fucking A, this is amazing. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> Boom, take it. Well, and you priced it $700 below what you could have got for a two bedroom. And now that person is your tenant for life. Yeah. And you just like, what is that? 8,400 times. You just like lit $100,000 or something of building value on fire with that one stupid mistake. Yep. Right? Like that is a situation where you probably want the operator to be like really hands-on in terms of what they're doing management-wise. Other markets are obviously much more forgiving in that way. So I think we don't want to prejudge. I think we want to, I think we want the operator kind of like lead us a little bit. What is my economics with you? What or what am I giving up to partner with y'all? And is that in perpetuity? Like how does it work? How does the partnership actually work? Yeah. So we start with what do we what do we give, right? And so right. I think we've talked a lot about that. You have, you know, there's a mentorship component, there's a services component, there's a capital component. And then what do we get? So the way the deal is structured is that we will provide operating capital as we've talked about to pay salaries for pursuit costs, et cetera. And then in exchange for for that, we'll also provide co-GP capital and, and in certain cases LP capital. In exchange for that, we're going to take a royalty stream, okay. a ten percent royalty stream on the business. Okay, so that's sorry. Just to be clear, ten percent of revenue in perpetuity. Ten percent of what revenue? Also, the, the operating, the operating revenue, or even the revenue on the building itself. Just uh, operating. Just okay. in the, the, imagine the operator. The, it's a GP entity that's going to go be the. So we we're effectively going to be like have a ten percent revenue share in the GP. So that means- Gross. Gross. So that means uh, ACK fee, asset management fee promotes at some point 10% in perpetuity for us. Okay. Yeah. And we also will have a first right of refusal on the deals that you generate. So we want to be your LP capital provider, especially early days as you're, you know, as the business grows, we'd expect you to kind of move away from us as you become an independent business. But that's 
So yeah, I think so. So basically, we're getting a right of first refusal on the LP capital on market terms. And what we mean by that is, look, if you are a great fundraiser and you can raise on terms that we don't like, right? That happens. Like there's some people who can raise on terms. I'm just like, I look at it. I'm just like, oh my God. Like, you know, again, go, go in good health. Like, you know, like, and from our perspective, look, we helped you get in business. We have got this 10% rev share and like you go and you're able to raise on zero pref 50, 50, like, great. Like we'll happily sit alongside you in the GP. We'll happily provide GP capital to your deals. Like what we, you know, are we going to want to provide the LP? Probably not. Yeah. Right. The likelihood is, particularly for these beginning operators, because they don't have such a long track record, is that they're not going to be able to extract such ridiculous LP terms, and we're probably going to be happy to do the LP for that. Yeah, yeah. But but to be clear, the way that we are thinking about our business, the place where we believe that we will create value for ourselves is in providing the LP capital. A traditional like let's say a traditional seeding business that would go out and seed GPs, they're making their money by extracting the largest portion of the GP that they can. We are we have made the conscious decision to minimize the the the, the share that we take out of the GP and make our money on basically like a 1% asset management fee on the LP capital. We're not actually even taking a promote on the LP capital. Oh, wow. It's really just, so we are in business to put a bunch of these operators out into the world, have them come back to us with the kind of deals that our allocators want to fund. And then for us to sort of vet those deals and make sure that they're good and oversee the operator, make sure they're not screwing things up, but really to funnel capital to them and then have a recurring revenue business from the asset management fee on what we believe will be a a steadily and and probably rapidly growing pile of LP capital that we have allocated. Yeah, I'd say this is the part of the business that took us the longest to really think through. I mean, we thought a lot about incentives. And once again, you know, we, we said, okay, how do we help people think long-term? How do we not extract so much of the economics that they want to kick us out the minute they're successful? And so the model that we've landed on, we think, is it's because we know how to. We've set up incentives where we can be partners for a very long period of time. And if I take a salary from you for the first year, and at the end of the first year, I'm like, I don't really like this anymore. You guys just eat the salary? Is it paid back? We eat the salary. Okay. And we don't advise that, by the way. And no yeah. one's getting rich on these salaries. No, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to what is a salary? Is it market dependent? If you're living in New York City, that's different than if you're living in San Antonio, Texas. It'll, it'll, it will be to some extent market dependent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. we want people to be able to live. What we don't want them doing is doing a bunch of low value stuff to get cash. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so it needs to be enough for someone to reasonably live on. And after year one, that salary's cut off. And at that point, the thought is they're sustaining their life by the deals that they've done. Yeah, this is an important point because this is this is the, one of the key problems in building one of these businesses, as you know, probably better than I do, is how do you eat and have a co-invest yeah. and survive long enough to do your next deal, particularly if you're not selling. Because again, we don't want these people to sell. We want to hold these things long-term. And so the answer is that we need to get them into a cycle where the fees that they are personally able to take exceed their co-invest, right? That's the only way this, that's how adaptive works. That's the only way you can do it if you're going to have people hold long-term. So what we are saying is we are going to put up the co-invest money so that 
as they start to get, they they will then be able to take the ACK fee, the construction management fee. Well, obviously that's going to be negotiated. It depends on the market. It depends on exactly what kind of deals they're doing, et cetera. But fundamentally, I call it the fee balance, like how much cash is coming in the door in fees and how much is going out and co-invest. We have to make it such that that balance from their perspective is net positive for them to be able to live on because otherwise it incents all kinds of behaviors that we don't want, like doing quick flips. So you're going to get 10% of revenue out of the operating company. Does that also give you 10% of the GP of their GP economics since you're owning 10% of the GP? Okay. And so- in theory, they could come to you and say, uh, I'm a great capital raiser. I did a zero prep 50-50, which shout out to anybody that's getting that. <laughs> um, uh, you would say, look, we're not going to be your LP, but we'll just participate in fees. So you have a right of first refusal, obviously, to look at the deal. But regardless, if they go do it with somebody else, you're still going to be their partner. Is that forever? Can they buy you out at some point? I I, I know we're like, we haven't even gone through cohort one <laughs> My mind always works with like, how do I get out of what I get into? Sometimes, like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think every partnership, you have to have exits. Right. right? So we know we know that. And But our goal, you know, like I said, and maybe I'm overusing the term, but we are really thinking about this long term. Yeah. And so if somebody's, you know, plotting their exit strategy out of the gates, <laughs> probably not. Our but guy, even in our, 10 our years, girl. like they weren't. Let's just say they've yeah. become the next... Keith Wasserman, and they're just huge. And they're like, why am I still giving 10% to reseed from 10 years ago? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the fundamentally, we need to continue to be valuable to them Yeah, to the extent that we are not. Now, the good news is at a 10% rev share, that's actually not that huge. Yeah. Right. So it's not like 50 or 25 where you're just like, okay, I got to get these guys out of here. Yeah. At 10, we're hoping that 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 so that's kind of like the hurdle. That's the bar. We need to provide enough value to them. Yeah. Such that it's worth their while to keep us around for that 10% rev share. Okay. And we think that, that that bar is low enough that we will likely be able to clear it. Okay. And if we can't, like, yeah, it's gonna be an awkward, unpleasant conversation, to be yeah. completely honest. Yeah. Cool. Holding for the long term. Is that just something written into the documents that we're gonna hold this, or is it just a Obviously, at this point, let, let, let me be clear. I'm asking these questions as if we're talking to people that we might not trust. If they've made it through the week, made it through application, they're in. Obviously, the best thing that's been created is like a level of mutual understanding, trust, and kind of clarity of thought. So the, the question really becomes, when you say we're going to hold it for 10 years or longer, that is just y'all saying, look, we've aligned with people that want to hold for the long term. But is there anything in the document or anything yeah. that forces that? Uh, well, pro, uh, promote crystallization. Because clause. like you don't have that. You, I don't. You technically could go sell tomorrow. I could. And I, you know, so we'll have the, uh, so there's two different things going on. One is to the extent that we're providing the majority of the LP capital, then we'll get decision rights, which yep. is sort of standard. Like, you know, if you, someone writes a huge check, like generally they get to approve sale and refinance. But crucially, we also, in addition to, uh, to the control rights, we have this promote crystallization clause. And the other, the understanding, and I don't have this in, in, in our deals, we don't have it. It's something I actually learned. Shout out to our friend Kendall. Yeah. Because we, we had a, a, Chris and I had a long talk oh, with yeah. Kendall about, about that at a YPO. <laughs> and we were just like, huh? I remember sitting there and going, damn, damn it. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and for those who, who, who aren't 
familiar with it, the idea behind promote crystallization clause is to say, look, like if the LPs, if the, if the capital wants to hold the asset, it's understandable that the operator wants to get paid and not be sitting behind this pref clock. And so there's various ways to strike it, but but basically what you say is, look, we t- we deem a moment in time where your work is done. You've stable, you've renovated the asset, you've stabilized it. Okay, let's mark it, sort of deem it sold, run the waterfall as if we had sold it, yep. and then allocate ownership of the asset based on who would have got what cash if we had sold it. Yep. And the idea being that the operator has done the work that we deem it sold. Now they, depending on how the numbers actually work. Maybe they end up owning 5% of the asset. Maybe it's 10. Maybe if they shot the lights out and it's 20, like whatever the number is, they own that. They're not sitting behind a pref anymore and they're just getting cash flow. Yep. And so we think that that does a good job of aligning interest. Like they're they're incentivized to to add the value in the way that we want them to add the value, but they're also not going to be getting killed by pref while we're all sitting around doing this wonderful long-term compounding. Yeah, I think that's actually better than if you're forced to sell the asset yeah. because then there's a pretty high probability that you're going to stay in place as the asset manager over time. So it gives you some durability of cash flow, but also gives you the opportunity to create a liquidity event. We don't have to go too deep into this. And I, again, I know we're asked, I'm asking questions that are as if we've been doing this for five years, but these people are going to get out on their own. And let's just say we have a superstar and they found three deals their first year. If they want to start hiring their own people, again, they're probably... Y'all are a resource to them in perpetuity, correct? To the extent you're still an owner, in the so they might still be able to come to you and say, "Who should we hire next? Oh yeah, how should we hire them? What should the job description look like?" Yeah, so we talked about there's a royalty, a revenue royalty stream that was very intentional, right? Yep. And as I mentioned, I think you know creativity and independence is an extraordinarily important component of people building big businesses. And so we don't want to be in the position of trying to tell you how to run your business, right? In that first year, there'll be some constraints, but over time, it ultimately, you get to make the decisions on who you hire, who you fire, what markets you go into, what asset types you're going to be involved in. We obviously are going to, you know, we're going to preach our theory and we hope it sticks, but at the end of the day, it's their business. I want to make two other points about that. One is I am very hopeful that many of these people will sort of like surpass my achievements to date in this business. Like it is a, a, a success for us looks like, you know, there's probably, it's probably like a power law distribution, like as, just like everything else in life. There's probably like a huge one that gets built and a bunch of pretty big ones. And so, like, but almost by definition, the huge ones and probably the pretty big ones are going to be bigger than adaptive. At a certain point, those people are going to surpass what I know, like good. Yeah. <laughs> what we are hoping to do is like in the beginning, it's very much like a, Moses and maybe some of Moses's friends, I'm looking at Chris right now, (laughs) Um, kind of like imparting to these people what we think we've learned about the business. Yeah. But ultimately, part of what we're trying to foster is like a a network effect where among these operators, where they are teaching and learning from each other so that as best practices get developed, they sort of get shared. I mean, look, no one's going to put a gun to their heads and say, you have to share. I mean, there's secret sauce that gets developed in every business. But we do think that there's a kind of a peer mentorship that will grow up kind of hopefully like, I mean, we'll give it a little bit of of gas, so to speak, in the beginning, but hopefully it develops organically among these people. To where those cohorts are becoming friends with each other and they're sharing and they're learning. and Yeah, well, and cohort one hopefully comes back and teaches cohort five 
Yeah. Like here's here's what we did, here's what worked, here's what didn't work. You know, don't listen to what Moses is telling you about this because it's really like this. Like that, we want that. Is there anything off limits? So you guys kind of said it has to be a market that y'all could scale in. It has to be a market that you could reasonably get done. Is there anything that's like, we will not do this? <laughs> that's a great question. For the time being, we are not going to take anyone who's directly competing with me. Okay. So um, you sorry, LA, west side of LA folks. Um, it's it's not for the time being. In other words, over the long term, and maybe not even that long term, I think that that will become a possibility. But look, part of what's going on here, frankly, is I have, and with along with my partner, like with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, developed kind of a playbook. And that playbook, it's not going to, not every play in the playbook works for every deal, but like uh, a large portion of it will. And I want a part of what we're doing here is transferring the parts of that playbook that are relevant to other markets to these operators. And so I want to be able to be frank with them and, and actually teach them everything I know and not feel like I'm training a bunch of competitors. So. So for the, for the time being, we're gonna we're gonna refrain from doing that. But it, but the idea is so that we can be open and really share everything else. I know there's like a million things. I'll put you on the spot. What's like, when people think, oh Moses, he, he you know he's learned this playbook. How great could this playbook? Name like one thing <laughs> that would be like I had to eat glass for a long time to learn this one thing that somebody that's sitting there that hasn't gotten in this business yet would it would take them years to figure this out. Okay, so our friend Eric Weatherholtz is always talking about <laughs> big windows. Yep. Okay. If you pull the window off a 1960s stucco building in Los Angeles. What you will see is there's a header above the window that generally extends a couple of inches past where the glass is. Okay. Okay. You can, if you're willing to rip the framing, you rip the old window out, you rip the framing, the stucco open and open it up. Inspectors will let you expand the width of the window by the two inches on either side that correspond to where the header ex extends past the where the current window is. And you can drop the bottom of the window all the way down almost to the floor uh, without compromising the both neither of those compromise the structural integrity of the building and force you to restuck to shear and restucco the building. So you can increase the window size without basically without a lot of re-engineering of the structure. Yep. And that's higher value because people people like large light. windows. Like if you look at our buildings, like everyone loves the large, the natural light. Like that's what's going on. Okay. Okay. There's like 50 of those. Yeah. Okay. In, in the reality, it's not a magical, it's not a magical business, right? It, yeah. it all adds up. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. I mean, none of those like that. Okay, great. Congratulations. Like I just told everyone how to make bigger windows in their apartments and good. I feel like I've done something good for like a lot of tenants out there for the next like however many generations. Uh, as Red said, it, each one of these things is like, it's not a silver bullet. It's just making things a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit. And it's the acc accretion of a bunch of little advantages that I think results in, you know, basically a somewhat higher unlevered yield on cost. And then you're either, you know, getting better returns or able to buy more deals or however you want to think about it. This was, I should have asked this earlier, and I think I know the answer, but why multifamily only to start? Is it the easiest asset class? Is it because of Moses's background? It's really around Moses. Okay. I, mean, I, I predominantly focused on multifamily in my last role as well, but 
you know, a big part of our thesis is that we can teach people the playbook. Right. Right. And so he has a lot of credibility, not to mention his personal brand on Twitter is about teaching people how to run operating partner businesses and how to buy multifamily assets. Fair enough. If I'm listening to this and I'm like, this all sounds great to the extent y'all can share and, and it, you know, I'm, and I'm leaning on you possibly for one funding, co-invest, LP, what's you've raised this money does it all come out of one fund are these long duration i'm assuming private investors can you share a little bit about where the money's coming from and how it's and how it works yeah so we've raised a, a discretionary pool of capital yep. it's very long term in nature okay that capital is predominantly going to be used to fund the operating capital for the gps and to fund the co-gp capital okay we have also the anchor investors have expressed an interest in investing in the deals as well. And we, as you probably saw on Twitter, we are also starting to take indications of interest in investing in deals and people are starting to specify what markets they may be interested in. And so we'd expect to build, you know, a syndicate, a process that we've may or may not have learned something from you along the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I, think, I think the idea is we, we are... Look, I mean, so we are going to, I think the scale of what we're trying to do is really large. Yep. So if you start to think of cohorts of five to 10 operators, two a year, and hopefully using, even if it's just five to 10 million of equity of our equity a year, and you start to think about what that looks like when you have three, four, five, six cohorts out in the wild sourcing deals. And obviously- Things will change year to year based on how attractive it is. But we are talking about having to raise an enormous amount of capital. And maybe to bring the conversation a little bit full circle, it's like I would like five years ago, I would have been like, you want us to raise how much? Yeah. But you know, you know from your business and, and obviously Red knows from his that like, yeah, people write hundred million dollar checks all the time. There's Couple, a lot of money up there. Yeah. And so so whereas five years ago, I would have been like, oh my, this business model, like on the face of it, I'm not going to attempt because who the hell could raise that much? Yeah. It's like, actually, paradoxically, it's exactly the kind of business that some very large check writers might want to write checks for. And that's because they're getting access to sub-institutional deals, which has higher returns. It's a long-term platform, so they'll benefit like the, the families that we discuss. Is there any other reasons why they would want to be in this? Well, I think one thing to say is it's expensive. If you let's say you're a family and you want to do these a bunch of these sub-institutional deals, it's like if you're to put out an amount of capital that moves the needle for you, you have to like it's expensive. Like you have to hire a bunch of people to look at deals and go make relationships with operating partners and follow up and 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 how do you even get the reporting back? Suddenly you're in a hundred little deals. And so what we're trying to do is create a structure that is amenable to those kind of where they first of all don't have to hire a bunch of people to go sift through stuff. So that, in other words, the deals that they're being served are like pre-selected for yeah. what they want to do. Another thing that we haven't really talked about at all during this conversation is we are going to standardize the reporting. Boom. Right? Because you can imagine a scenario where you have all these 
operators out there sending back different reports. And forget about from the allocator's perspective, just from our perspective. Like you can imagine that becoming like a mess pretty quickly. Yep. So it's like we're we're kind of enforcing some order how the deals are presented. Like instead of having a hundred different formats. Like we are going to standardize when you bring us a deal. This is what you show us, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that we we have the data that we need to make a decision. Okay. So we're we're kind of like socializing the sort of getting the operators to organize what they're doing in a way that makes it digest even to digestible to large pools of capital. Yeah, yeah. When I started playing around with this idea for the business, I thought a lot about what in this business is scalable or what can you centralize and what's not scalable. And so that's one of our frameworks of thinking about what we build internally, how we support the operating partners, and then what stays in their business. And so as, as Moses said, and, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, but I'm sure a lot of what you do in the back office, I mean, you started a management business, that's scaled, right? A lot of the accounting, that scales. What doesn't scale is understanding, you know, what block, what street, what assets are really, really attractive. Yep. And to the extent and there's i mean there's institutional knowledge but there's also the risk that you know you hire someone that becomes the expert in that one market and then they leave and then you got to rebuild it again we've found ways around that i think technology helps but we've had to think through a lot of that because for us and i'm not trying to make it about me but you go hire a bunch of acquisition people on a team they're the highest paid they're the first to leave they all the things and they leave with their broker relationship and institutional knowledge each yep. time. And so it's something we've, I can tell you how we've, I think we've solved it. But for years, it was like you said, it was everything else scales really well, but institutional knowledge is, is tougher and you, it is the cream that makes alpha. Yeah. And I mean, from our perspective, I mean, I think it's basically another way. I mean, my hat is off to you for what you guys have done here. It's really pretty amazing. Thank you. Um, this is sort of another way to skin that cat. It's yeah. to say like, okay, let's make it their business. Like, and we'll help them with all the other stuff that maybe they can't do, like capital raising and building the systems and all that stuff. Make it their business. Yeah. So that they're not, you know, they're, they're not tempted to go run away because it's their business. Have you thought about this? I go through, I'm going through, again, this is we, and I'm coming back to Fort Worth and cohort two, another Fort Worth person comes up. How many people can you have in one market before there's too many people Great. in the market? Yeah, I think realistically, I mean, Fort Worth, Dallas, it's a big market. You could have a number of people. Yeah. That's not our objective. You know, I could see a point five, 10 years out where maybe we're putting a second person in the same market. Yeah. But we're not going to have overlap in the same market for the foreseeable future. Okay. So it's going to be mainly across the country. And then the second might just be getting into different asset classes right. before you start dropping more people in. You had mentioned three other partners. Can you just talk about them for a second? What else is everybody on the team doing? Yeah. So we actually have a, a fourth that works for us. She's not a partner, but work for us part-time as well. Doug McCrary is the CFO, Columbia Business School, worked at Goldman Sachs, worked in private equity, Wow. has a ton of transaction experience, just a, a very, very bright guy. David Bergeron, he was ran a business called T3. It was a commercial brokerage business that he ultimately sold to Savills. So he'll spend a lot of time on the capital raising side. And Laura Kranick, I mentioned earlier in the bot story, but she's the director of operations and, and strategy. And I worked with Laura in a previous previous role. And so a lot of what you saw in terms of the rollout 
she was responsible for you know the timing and the infrastructure and and, and the scaling and she will be you know very involved in that side of the business as well and then hunter breckenridge who's pursuing her mba has also been working with us on really the digital strategy and a lot of the, the tech infrastructure cool sorry i'm just kind of going through now like questions yeah but- go for it Talks about capital. One of the hardest things early on for us was getting loans guaranteed. Is that a service y'all are going to offer or how do you think about that? Great question. So currently at the very beginning, no. What we'll do at the very beginning, beginning, particularly for the kind of heavy value add type stuff that might need to be personally guaranteed is instead be willing to do those uh, all cash Yep. if we have to. I mean, as you know, like that's how we just have it adaptive anyway. You so, are you are really weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, man. I mean, I, I probably said, no. I've said it to you before. Like, I, you know, I actually, it's super funny. I was talking to an LP of ours recently about a deal that we're renovating, and he was like, um, "Well, you're going to put a loan on this because it's a deal we own where the structure is such that we actually, I'm sort of indifferent as to whether we put a loan on it or not." And I, was, and I, I couldn't, I didn't know whether he meant after we had stabilized the property or or while renovating it. He's like, "Are you going to put a loan on it?" And I'm like, "Uh." You don't want to be borrower. I thought like you don't. You're not trying to borrow at nine percent, which is what it costs to get a bridge loan or something in Los Angeles right now. He's like, no. <laughs> like, and in general, like the rich people who capitalize our deals, like they're like, we loan money at nine percent. We don't borrow money at nine percent. <laughs> and and that's kind of how we've, how, how why we've one of the reasons we've operated the way we have. And I think we will continue that for 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 these people in the beginning. We, I think we will end up probably creating some kind of a guarantee vehicle. I, I just want to say that like setting up what we're talking about is really hard. Yeah. It's super easy to talk about it For now. Sure. And it's like Doug has been banging his head against the wall, like putting together, working with Red, obviously, on these docks week after week after week. And it's just like, oh, a guarantee vehicle? Sounds really easy to say. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that's going to be a month of someone's time figuring that out and everything. So we're working on it. And uh, I think we'll have some solutions in that regard. And, and and under that regard, it's not like if I'm in the Fort Worth market, I'm probably going to a Fort Worth lender or bank to try and get my loan. I'm not going through y'all and saying, who's your network? Get a loan from those folks. I no, really well, am running it on my own. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, to the extent that we can help, of course we'll help. Like, yeah. you know, if it's, if, you know, for example, like I have existing relationships with loan brokers that who work in other markets besides Los Angeles, like, of course I'll make the introduction and try to help and everything. But again, like sourcing debt is a key part of being a standalone real estate operating business and they need to learn to do that. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that we might not say, hey, go see, you know, Sally Smith down the street. But what we will say is, here's how you present a transaction. Here's the way you should think about it. Here's how I would approach the problem. And I think just, you know, a lot of what we will be doing is sharing best practices across the cohort. And helping them understand if, like, when the LOI comes back from the lender, like, is that reasonable? Like, you know, what are the things, where are the minds, you know, what's the, where's the minefield in here? What are the terms that don't make sense, et cetera? You guys have obviously thought a lot about this, and we talked about kind of the things that you might do in that first year. You're going to call brokers. You're going to meet property managers. You're going to walk units. You're going to learn OPEX. Is there anything or maybe a few things that you guys see as like the couple of things that you hope people spend the most time on out of all those that kind of separate them? Or is it 
hey, here are five like pillars of ways to learn and they're all kind of equal or is it weighted differently? If, if you're thinking about somebody brand new to the market, buying sub-institutional, where should the majority of their time be spent? On deal flow, on meeting brokers? I think it's deal flow. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the key learnings from my career so far is like that playbook that I were, that we were just talking about, like the window thing. Like you don't come up with that from like sitting around staring at a whiteboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't like like magic that into existence. It comes from buying a deal, being presented with a set of challenges and opportunities, and then trying to resolve those or take advantage of them. And over time, you, looking at what works and what doesn't work and how much it costs and all that stuff, and then saying, okay, now this goes in the playbook. And then obviously the playbook gets developed. And so we can kind of transfer a bunch of that knowledge to them. But what works in their particular market is inevitably going to be, you know, a trial and error process. Right. So yeah, initially it's deal flow. And then over time, as they start to transact and actually get in the weeds, then I think there's there, that's where the real learning kind of starts. Do you guys have a bias towards technology? Like, should they be using technology? Or are y'all going to offer here's some stuff you should use. Obviously, they're not going to be doing their own property management, so they'll probably use whoever their property manager is. But anything on the tech side that maybe shared services or recommendations? Yeah, once again, I mean, at the end of the day, it's their business, but yeah. we're going to have some pretty strong opinions on technology you, you deploy. There are, as Moses was alluding to, there are some things that are non-negotiable. Yep. And you know, the accounting, the back office, the investor relations, those are going to be non-negotiables. And, you know, we don't really expect much pushback given how much, you know, the experience and how much we've thought about the products. But on, on the technology side, it's largely going to be recommendations as opposed to mandates. And I think, I mean, we're, I, I want to say, like, I, I'm far from cutting edge in this department. Like, when I, like, adaptive is certainly not perfect in, 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 in these ways. So, I mean, we're taking we're being very open-minded we've you know talking to other people about how they run a syndication process like what should this because you know it's one for me to run a syndication for a one-off deal with 20 or 30 lps like yeah it's fine if we do that by hand right like or you know and maybe it's not the most efficient thing or whatever as you know trying to do it at scale like when you're trying to raise very large quantities of capital from you know potentially from large numbers of lps though all those processes need to be buttoned up oh yeah so that's what that's why it's not negotiable. It's like we're gonna we've kind of we have some thoughts about what best practices are. We're gonna we're gonna continue to investigate them, and then we're gonna come to what we want them to do, and they're gonna do it because that's the only way to manage a business like this. Is there a minimum size deal? Like a fourplex wouldn't be worth our time. I could imagine. I think for, well okay. in LA, it might. That's like a ten million dollar deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know where to get them for ten. Let's go. Uh, no, uh, uh, I I think it's a it's a tricky question because we've gone back and forth about this a little bit. I could imagine, I could imagine a scenario where you could have a market where there are a bunch of like one and two million dollar deals and like, but you had like a clear pathway to doing 50 of them or 100 of them and a way to execute i but that however <laughs> that would not be my preference and yeah. i you know i just i've done this like we you know we have renovated i've renovated more than 100 apartment buildings at various times we have been doing as many as 20 of them at a time okay 
it is very challenging. Like it, it, to do all that without screwing things up and losing track and getting your accounting jumbled and all that stuff, it is really hard. Yep. So, so to the extent that we can help them avoid getting into that kind of a morass, we're going to try to do that. So, and what does that practically mean? Like, I don't know, like maybe in real life, the minimum is 3 million or 4 million, but so we want to be open-minded, but also guided by my, like by my scars. We're going to, I'm going to wrap up kind of a reseed discussion. Then I want to, I have another topic I want to go into, but if we just said 10 years from now, and this has an opportunity to be a big business, what can this thing look like 10 years from now? Is this just, we have hundreds of these people now out into the world. Are there ways you're thinking about how the business evolves 10 years from now? And we're starting here, but it could go here. Like, how have you thought about it long-term? Yeah, we really think about it by market and asset type. And so if you, just to put a little math behind it, if you think how many markets in the U.S. could we be in 30, 40, 50? Yeah. Um, probably a lot more than that, but let's use 50. What are the major asset types, industrial, self-storage, maybe life science, go on and on and on. And so you can think about this could be a very large asset management business. If we end up where we're putting, you know, 10 people in business a year and each one of those does two transactions, that's 20 tra transactions per cohort. If that's an average check size of $10 million, that's a couple hundred million dollars of capital. And you can imagine how that can stack. If we're doing two cohorts a year, all of a sudden you're at 400 million of capital and it, you know, it can get pretty large. And then cohort number one, five years later is now doing 20 deals a year. So they're accelerating. Yeah. Yeah. It could, I mean, that's, that, this is now you're sort of starting to see like why this is appealing to me. I mean, this is, it's all very easy for us to sit around a table, uh, uh, a very a nice in a nice podcast studio, and <laughs> and talk about uh, talk about this. Um, in real life, this is going to be really hard. Yeah, like, you, know, you know, hopefully it's going to be a little easier for these people than it was for me. Uh, but um, but it, it is a complicated business, so I do not want to minimize the challenges we're facing. But the opportunity is to build a very large asset management business. Okay. Um, I just, I just kind of want to hear how y'all are thinking about the market. I mean, I don't know much. I know, I, I, I know a little bit about multifamily. It seems like there's a lot more bridge debt in multifamily, and that tends to be the headline right now. It's more financing issues rather than like vacancy issues. But how are y'all thinking about the market? I mean, this is, you can make an argument, an amazing time to launch a business right at a fractured time where there's going to be some opportunities are the opportunities to be in the bigger deals, the smaller deals, like let's just have a market discussion to bring it home. Yeah. I think, I think this is the biggest risk to the business right now. And that, you know, if you gave us significant amount of capital to go deploy in multifamily, be very hard to do. I mean, Moses is case in point number one, but I think you, we, we really believe you're starting to see the signs of stress. Okay. Right? You know, what are those signs? Just you're starting to see some of the, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, it's the fundamentals at the asset level, yeah. right? So, you know, especially here in Texas, you're obviously seeing pressure around your insurance costs, costs, tax. There's, we all know what's happened with interest rates. As you mentioned, there's a lot of people that have bought assets and, you know, 21, 22, probably not, probably not that well capitalized with loans that are starting to mature. So, but what we don't know is when all that, you know, how bad will it be? Will we have a recession? How much will that impact the operating fundamentals? 
And then you really need to know the answer to those questions mm. to know how much distress will be in the marketplace and whether it'll be in the large transactions or the, sm- the smaller transactions. Yeah. And I, for me, I would just say that I, I, I am much more, I'm more focused than on the fundamentals than I am on the financing. Like yeah. I kind of think if the, if in the employment situation is really good. Like, you know, there's basically anyone who wants a job in America can get one right now. I mean, notwithstanding some of the, like the doom and gloom you sometimes hear on on Twitter and other places, like anyone dark on Twitter and people like, I I feel like sometimes that this is like a, I don't want to get on a rant here, but there it's like, sometimes people, it's like they're, they're talking with information that's from five or 10 years ago. There's like, you know, there's like, and politicians are like this too. It's like, they're talking about a world where it's hard to get a job. And it's like, if you have a pulse and you can fall out of your front door right now, <laughs> you can get hired, yeah. right? So, and so as long as that is the case, then, and people can keep paying their rent, then, okay, you know, you're, you have these financing issues, like, you know, there'll be rescue equity, there'll be people, maybe the banks let them work it out. Like there's, you can sort of solve financing problems. Yeah. If, for whatever reason, and by the way, the Fed is pushing in this direction, employment weakens and people are not filling those apartments and you start to see vacancy go up and then you start to see rents to come down. Then I think the financing becomes more of an issue because it's like, it's one thing to come to your LPs and say, hey, look, we, we need a couple million bucks here to avoid losing the building. We're going to do a, it sucks, but we're going to do a cash in refi, but hey, the building's performing pretty well and you like the asset before. So you probably still like it now and that's all fine. Your LPs probably hold their nose and they write the check. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's another thing. If you're coming to them and you're saying, well, I need the 2 million. And by the way, like the wheels are falling off at an operating level. Yeah. Right. You know, so, so again, that's like a very long, fancy way of saying like, we'll see, but it's to me, it's like really about employment and, and whether people are paying. And in your market, you have, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's, it's fun to talk like in generality. Yeah. But in the reality, I mean, in the reality, when you look at the supply in Austin or Nashville, it's very different than supply in Denver, Birmingham, or, you know, pick your market. So at the end of the day, it's very micro, micro market specific. That's why I love it. Are you seeing any sign like first cracks in LA? LA is so interesting. I mean, (laughs) I'm going to try to avoid sounding too downbeat. (laughs) We, um, being really frank, like the city has not allowed owners of rent stabilized buildings to raise the rent since March of 2020. Okay. And will not again until March of 2024. Okay. And so what that has meant is that there is much now, now look, look, there's the normal turnover. People left. People, that's all fine. What has happened is there's much less turnover than there was previously because people are like, every, you know, their salaries are going up. Rents in the spot market are going up, but the rent that they're actually paying to their landlord is flat, and and and, and flat in in uh, in nominal terms in a high inflationary environment means down in real terms. It's like a big wealth transfer from me to to tenants. Anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, so what's going? So there's this weird thing going on in LA where the vacancy rate is very low, right? No one's moving. Right. So, so there's much less turnover than you would expect because of this rent stabilization issue. For a while there, the result was that there was a lot of, there's very little vacancy. And so rents were going crazy for rents in the spot market. It was awesome. Like last year, rents were going nuts. That has tailed off. 
that's now rents. It depends on the neighborhood. It's very neighborhood specific, but like in our best neighborhoods, they're still up. In our worst neighborhoods, they have started to come down a little bit. So that's what I'm watching really carefully. Okay. When you think about like the the if if there was a coming recession, we just heard yesterday Blackstone raised their new thirty one billion dollar <laughs> fund. Seems like you know I've I've been in meetings and I've heard there's two hundred and seventy billion of committed capital. You know, you come from a big money world. Your career is that all hearsay? Is that all, or is it different this time? In that there really is a lot of capital, and there's kind of a floor baked into this real estate market because of how much capital there is. Like, what goes through your mind when you think about the cap, the committed capital? Yeah, I think there's capital available, and then propensity to commit capital when you start to see stress. Yeah, and so there is a ton of capital that's on the sidelines. Yeah. But when you think about large institutions where you're taking an investment through an investment committee, it's not exactly the place that, you know, they're really going to double down and get aggressive when the markets start to fall apart. Right. So it's really going to, I mean, if we see a lot of stress at the operating level, you know, I, I think that capital will likely, you know, some of it will come in the market, but I think there'll be a lot of opportunity. The other thing to say is that the last time we went through one of these, so like when when we were all getting started in the, yep. you know, oh wait, whatever. The 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 regulators allowed or encouraged the banks to extend and pretend on the loans. I think it's reasonably likely that that will not happen this time. Mm. So I think the banks are better capitalized. There seems to be, I mean, already you're seeing people send keys in and stuff like that. There seems to be a, a, a willingness uh, uh, from the banks to take back assets that there was not the last time. And so, you know, who knows early days, but there's not that buffer. Like, so, yeah, yeah. so maybe there's equity available, but there may not be, there may not be debt available. Do you, when you think of sub-institutional assets and I'm, I'm, I'm generally curious, do you think there's more distress in sub-institutional than there is in the bigger stuff? Or is it because the bigger stuff, most of that is non-recourse. It's probably professionally managed where they're like, take it back. We know you'll lend to us again. And in the smaller world, these are people's livelihoods. It's a lot more at stake. I can speak to COVID like every credit tenant we had were all the ones that wanted to, <laughs> that we heard from their lawyers like week one and all the mom and pops were the ones like, we'll do anything. If you think about that at ownership level, and again, I was young in 08, so I can't really, I haven't really thought about it. Is there going to be less distress or more distress depending on how big the deal is? I think, I, like, look, I'm not an expert across all asset classes at all sizes. What I have seen both in my own market, but also frankly on Twitter, is that there are a lot of undercapitalized syndicators who yeah. got into the business to do a 5 million or a 10 million or something. And then, Crazily, you started seeing them do twenty million and fifty million. This ding dong in Houston who just got himself <laughs> lost a few hundred million dollar portfolio about five minutes after he bought it. Uh, um, so, uh, uh, so I think there and 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 someone like that, like there, you know, the LPs are probably looking at things on a for for those people they didn't have long term LP relationships. The LPs were very transactional. So. When he go when that guy turns around and calls the seventy five LPs and says, "Hey, I need you to double down on this asset where the wheels are falling off," the, the LPs are like, "Who is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know you, and you just screwed up." And like, no, like, That's you know, so right? true. 
And so I think that that's going to be there's that th- there's going to be some distress there. Now the question is, like, we wouldn't have paid the prices that the guy paid on the first on the way in, yeah. right? <laughs> like that's why he bought it and we didn't buy it, right? So the question is, at, at what point? And oh, and by the way, also a lot of the assets those people were buying are assets that we probably wouldn't want to own, right? Right. So the question is, does I think there will be distress there? A lot of those people also use floating rate bridge loans. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a whole list of do not, do not, do not. Um, uh, the question is, do you know? Do we want to own those assets, and at what price? Yeah, you know, and there, and and the truth is that probably you're willing to own a lot. There's probably a lot of assets that you're willing to own at if the price is right. Yeah. And the question is, just does the price get right? Yeah, you said something earlier. Uh, I'm I'm I just looking at my note, but I think this recession is going to be. I think we're about to find out there was a lot of like middle management and white collar work that was just totally not needed. You've already seen it in the tech world, but I think you could make the argument. And then it's the first time like our blue collar economy is like so underemployed right now. The joke is like, what does a plumber make? Whatever he wants. Yeah. I'm not saying all the white collars, but it's an interesting dynamic as you think about rent payers, especially at the higher end of the market. I'm not saying that they're going to get fired and go get hired somewhere else. I think we're about to discover there's just a lot of irrelevant jobs that didn't need to exist. Well, I think, I mean, it, and to your point, I mean, we and we've had this conversation on Twitter and other places about work from home. I, like, and I think you can see this in the tech companies. I think, I think, people went home, productivity plummeted. The response, because a lot of the businesses were actually doing quite well, was to throw bodies at the problem. Yep. Like okay, we we you know the people are not that productive, but but the top line's growing really fast, so we're just gonna oh, we got it we got a service we got to service our customers, so we're gonna hire, and so there's a lot of hiring that took place, uh, and I think that as you said, a lot of those a lot of those people who got hired, like maybe if productivity had been at a reasonable level to start with, yeah. would not have been hired in the first place. Yeah. yeah, the other thing to say on that is that if you look at the supply, there's a lot of talk about how we're hitting record supply, but the reality is you are in some markets. In other markets, you're not. Yep. And we all know that the vast majority of that supply is in that kind of nice luxury product. Yeah. And I would imagine the situation you've described is really that's the target market. Yeah. So I would so our expectation is that's where you'll see uh the stress. No, I I I live it in the industrial world. They're they're building you can go build all the big class A big box you want. It does not impact. It's just a totally different, different world, world than yeah. what you know, sub-institutional class B value add. It's just a different ball game. All right. This has been awesome. Um, really great. So Thank fun. you. Thank you for coming to Fort Worth. We have a good dinner ahead of us tonight. <laughs> I'm super pumped about what y'all are doing and obviously would love to help any way I can, but it's it's something that's needed. And I think not only I hope you build a huge business, I just hope you hope you help a lot of people along the way. Well, that's, you know, thank you for saying that. And, and you know, I probably said this to you, before maybe even on a podcast like if i in another life i would have been a teacher instead of uh, instead of a real estate operator and so when red came to me with the opportunity to kind of to help some people who might not have got into the business otherwise build what we hope will be like really like life and maybe family changing amounts of wealth in a business that we all love so much like that i mean that's obviously that's like the perfect opportunity from my perspective so awesome totally agree thanks chris yeah thanks guys thanks dude I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. 
for more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 